Hi everyone and welcome back to the next episode of the Streamtime Podcast. I'm here again with Chris Stone. Chris, been a big week for you and a lot of things happening in the industry, but most importantly, some big news for you on the NFL front. Yes, the Cincinnati Bengals beat their most hated rivals, the Pittsburgh Steelers, because we are by far the winningest team when it comes to that rivalry. So uh, anytime the Bengals win, it's a moment that I cherish. Anytime we can beat the Steelers is even better. So a uh, 41 to 10 win is just the way I like to wrap up my weeks. <laughs> well, that is a great segue for our for our podcast this week, which is with the NFL. But we'll get back to that in a second. Um, lots of been going on across the industry. Um, but let's talk about the Streamtime podcast. The last edition of the podcast caused quite a bit of interest across the industry and also from those avid Fubo investors and fans across the world. Um, what was your take on hearing from David Gandler and his and his take on the financials and and how Fubo's TV is performing? I have to be honest, Nick. My favorite thing is actually watching how Twitter explodes. I'm I'm a big fan of Twitter. I get on it. And I love seeing the finance bros. You know, it started with the Dogecoin movement and, you know, what was that GameStop? And they were all trying to tank the stock. So for me, I find that hilarious. And every time we cover Fubo, I can always count on the finance bros who would probably never tune into Sports Bro for anything else. They love it whenever we speak to David. And I don't think this was uh, any different. I think I saw some of the replies in the tweet saying, hey, can you get the stock to rise again? Uh, so that's actually my favorite takeaways, you know, reading some of the, you know, finance bros on Twitter talking about how upset they are with them. Yeah, I never heard or seen the word longing or shorting more in this in, in the, my Twitter Twitter feed than I did last week with everyone jumping on, jumping on top of what David was saying about how their performance was. And uh, one of the things I did ask him was, you know, they had possibly their best quarter ever, and yet they had $80 million loss. They had their share price take a big hit immediately after the numbers uh, and he wasn't too happy about it and, and neither was neither was the Twitter fraternity. So um, let's see if they get a little bump with all these people um, you know who were, who were jumping in to say that they were still big believers in the Fubo stocks. But um, one thing I did take away from it is very interesting that they acquired a French uh, broadcaster. I mean that's um, a bit out of the blue for a lot of people who thought they were very US focused. Uh, Molotov they, they said they paid $190 million. I imagine that's mainly in stocks, so not a lot of cash in that deal. Um, but part of the main buy there is not only you know access to a new market and new platform and a new audience, but it's also to their technology and engineering team, which he seemed to be most excited about. And I thought that was really interesting given you know, Fubo TV is quite an established business to start looking at acquiring new businesses potentially for that as a, as a core reason at that sort of level, we're not talking small numbers here, um, was quite interesting to, to read about or to hear about, I should say. Well, Fubo, we always hear his, his statement, which is come for the sports, stay for the entertainment. And in your, you wrote a piece before the OTT summit, sort of your 15 learnings over the last 12 months. And one of those was around live sports is not going to be enough to retain consumers. You've got to be able to provide more for the user experience to keep them around. So I think this idea of them looking at not just what's the, the package that they're putting together from a content perspective, but they are trying to look into the actual user experience. You know, how do they incorporate stats, fantasy betting into the actual getting people to stay on the platform for the entertainment side? And, you know, it's not just Molotov. Uh, they're, they are also acquired a... Uh, 
an Indian tech company that's in the AI world kind of looking at the same exact area as well. Yeah, lots going on. Um, so I'm really interested. Uh, to be honest, I was shocked as well to see their price dip so much um, on the stock market. So I'm ready to see what happens next because the outlook doesn't look much better than it did after that quarter. Um, so in terms of like seeing a better quarter next quarter to get the you know get the fans and the, the investors excited will be very interesting to see. Also, they lost eighty million dollars in a quarter. They got four hundred million dollars in the bank. They got only about two years of runway before they run out of cash. So he's going to have to see some big movements on the top line or bottom line there to uh, to make sure that business is heading in the right direction. But one thing's for sure, he used the term was it global domination. He he's quite quite avid in uh, his sentiment that they are only at just the beginning. So uh, one definitely to watch now. You know, the big the, the the big edition of this podcast will be all about the NFL. Um, we're speaking with Blake Stukin, who's vice president of digital media business development at the NFL. Now, obviously, we started with a bit of Bengals news, which will obviously excite loads of people. Uh, well, actually, not really, just just you, Chris. Uh, but what are you most excited about hearing from Blake today? Well, there's obviously a few exciting things for the NFL, and you know, looking forward to the Sports Pro OTT USA Summit, you know, one of the areas that we're focusing on was this sort of last 12 months was looked at a potential period that we would see some of the disruptors like a DAZN potentially come in and start taking some of these premium rights. But the NFL has now just gone and signed a very long term. The majority of the rights are settled for the, the foreseeable future. So in some ways, it's kind of, you know, what's what's next? Because this had kind of been earmarked as a potential, you know, era a new era of sports where all these new players were coming in. And that's just not what we're going to see. So it's interesting. There was so much build up around this. And essentially, we ended up with what we had before almost to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I am quite interested to hear what he says about that. And since I've done the interview, I already know what he does say. <laughs> um, but, you know, earlier this year, they signed their, was it $110 billion in broadcast deals, which get them signed up to, uh, was it 2030? Um with Amazon on a billion dollars, ESPN two and a half, CBS, Fox, and NBC all two billion dollar checks, all all in place for all of that. So they are they've got the cash lined up. And what he told me, and what you'll hear a bit more about, is because they've got the, that long runway in place to work um, to work to work on their broadcast partnerships. Now they're focused on all the other areas areas of the pie, i.e., betting and gambling and other areas that can grow their digital business. So I'm really interested to hear what he's got to say on that and how else they're looking to to grow their digital business. He did say betting was a primary part of that. Um, so we'll be interesting to hear what he's got to say. One thing he does talk about, which has become bigger news lately, is that they are talking to Goldman Sachs about you know selling their media-owned business and platform. Now, more lately, there's come out some news about who is in uh, who's in place for that. So I don't know what your take is on that, but it's very interesting from my point of view to see that the NFL is considering selling what I would consider one of the best NFL media business, uh, sorry, one of the best media businesses in the marketplace. Well, yeah. It, and interestingly, it's Amazon that seems to be the front runner for that. And to me, what's interesting is A, red zone is the best thing that exists in sports. How there's not a red zone equivalent for every sport, I don't know. Uh, there needs to be. But specifically with Amazon, you know, this is a part of that larger conversation where we're always talking about D to C direct to consumer. The way Amazon is now selectively picking out those rights and how they're building that out and really connecting the D to C ecosystem, you know, I'm really just excited to see if that does happen, how they continue to link in what they're already doing 
to specifically that NFL package. So to me, it's just interesting because we had Marie Donahue speak before, and she's obviously mentioned, you know, they're very selective in how they're going about things. And this feels like another opportunity for them to continue to put their foothold in this ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And now I think their focus will be heavily on the international market where they're looking to try and really grow quite rapidly into Europe and into other markets at pace. Um, So I'd expect to really see a lot of movement there as well. But look, that's enough of us. Let's get into the conversation with Blake. um, And I hope you enjoy. Awesome. Welcome to the Stream Time Podcast, Blake. Great to have you with us. Now, set the scene for us. I think it's important we do this uh, this time around. Where are you right now for those listening in? Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. I'm in beautiful New York City in my seven-year-old's bedroom. I am surrounded by a lot of Legos and an image of Captain America and Spider-Man. I love it. No better setting for a, a, a serious conversation around around the digital side of sports, uh, in my view, because uh, you know the world's changing fast, and, and uh, I think it's a good time to be talking about things like um, like about how kids how kids are consuming stuff, and you guys are leading the forefront of of the way uh, people are consuming uh, content through digital. So, what better scene to do it from a, from a child's room? I say. Um, so let's dig the, into things. Your job title, Vice President of Digital Media Business Development at the NFL. Sometimes job titles say everything, and sometimes they provide more questions than answers. So, Blake, what is your remit within the NFL specifically, and what is it not, as that title could point us in, in you know, a variety of different directions? Sure. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that I'm holding a microphone, which is pink and belongs to my four-year-old daughter. So uh, thanks, Zach and Ella, for listening to this part of this and probably nothing else. Um, my role at the NFL is part of the uh, media strategy and business development team. Our group looks after the league's media rights and thinks about some of the high-level strategic opportunities that we have for the business. There are two main things that are part of that. One is our live games and all of the ancillary uh, things that we do around those live games, things like sports betting, different forms of distribution packages, and our subscription products. The other half of that is what we call 24-7, which very simply is every other second of the day that our fans are not watching live games, what are we doing with them? What products are we making? What are the opportunities for our partners to engage with that audience? And at the same time, during that same three hours a week that our teams are playing, what are we doing on a second screen, third screen, and fourth screen with our partners, creating media experiences, engaging fans at the stadium, those are the core areas that we focus on. It's it's called digital. It touches a whole range of, of different areas now increasingly across everything from social media to uh, connected devices. And uh, one of the things that's always so much fun about it is just how dynamic and evolving this space always is. Absolutely. And we're going to dig into some of that shortly. But Blake, you originally started your career as an investment banker and then... Headed now, you're heading up digital, the digital business, the NFL. Tell us a little bit about the journey, how you go from being in the banking space to ending up where you are today. I appreciate it. I, I actually started my career as a web developer and a marketer, and I, I'm I'm often 
I'm always happy to point that out first because the, the journey to being an investment banker was unusual in and of itself. But the through line for me has been media. I, I am someone who has always been fascinated by the way that people communicate and the different forms of media around which they do that. I couldn't have articulated that quite as clearly, I suppose, when I was studying in college. But looking back on it, that was really the thing that, that stuck out to me. Um, when I was graduating college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and studied communication um, with no plan ever to specifically work in sports. The only thing I knew that was of interest to me was being somewhere that involved how people connect with one another and being in the media business. And so I started my career as a marketer. I had been a web developer uh, during the early days of the web 1.0 dot-com bubble growing up as a kid here in New York City. Um, Silicon Valley gets a lot of attention, but we had Silicon Alley here as well. Um, I point out, I don't deserve any level of credit for getting to be at some digital agencies at a very early age. They were hiring just about anybody who could write code, and I was young and cheap and available. And uh, so I got to see a lot of really fun things, which was great. Um, but my whole career has mostly been trying to answer the question of how people make decisions and learning more about that. I was someone who in my early jobs was given an assignment to go make something. And I would say, that's interesting. I wonder what led them to tell me to make it look like that. And so then I went from being a developer, what's now called in marketing parlance an agency creative, to being on the account side, advising Fortune 500 companies on their marketing strategy. Uh, and similarly, I would work with clients and hear from a brand manager or hear from a CMO, here's what we think you should do. And we'd give advice as well and had a copywriter and uh, art director and the whole team. And we were doing some early data and analytics work around that and would have a similar experience saying, I wonder how they got to that insight. I wonder what it was that led them to say we should build a product that looks this way or we should reach people a, a certain type of way. Um, and that's really what brought me into finance. Um, one other thing I should point out, if only because I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think I'm fairly unusual among my colleagues at the NFL. Um, when I first started as a marketer coming out of college, the first thing I was tasked with doing, I worked at a place called Digitas, which is now part of Pulisys, one of the big agency holding companies. And at 22 years old, they said, we're going to put you on an account. Pharmaceutical marketing is growing here in the United States. We want you to work in that space. It's actually fairly complex because there's a lot of regulation. How would you feel about working on the marketing team for Viagra? And that was my first experience into being a marketer. And I will say also, though I didn't plan it at the time, it was my first experience in sports marketing because Viagra actually sponsored a NASCAR driver, Mark Martin, at the time. And so I had an opportunity without ever having planned to, to work with Octagon and a host of other agencies that were representing the driver, uh, but also to learn a lot about a very... Um, fast-moving form of marketing. I left the industry entirely because I was interested in understanding a bit more about how the entirety of business decisions are made. I still think being at a marketing agency with smart clients, with um, really great people, there, there's no better place to learn. I was really fortunate. Um, and in my case, was just interested in getting a broader lens on the business. So I first had a bit of a transition because I went into investment banking, uh, working as a media banker, covering um, media companies. So I was doing mergers and acquisitions and capital raising for things like music studios, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, music publishing companies, film studios, 
companies that had IP of some form. And so I was not looking to leave investment banking. I was having a, a really good experience there. I had gotten an MBA along the way. But what really uh, stood out to me was that I was always interested in being back in an operating business in some form. And my journey to the NFL was that I was accepting a friend request on LinkedIn when the first role that I would ever have at the NFL popped up in the jobs you may be interested in box, which I had never clicked on before and haven't since. And that was 10 years ago. Um, I had never planned on working in the sports industry, but the I am an avid sports fan. Football has always been my favorite sport. And I was excited not just about the opportunity to work in sports, but mostly about the fact that it was an opportunity to work within the league's media business, thinking about growing its digital presence and digital strategy. And that was 2012, and here I am now. That's a pretty pretty awesome journey and a pretty, pretty awesome story. And you got to give credit to LinkedIn nailing those algorithms even 10 years ago or so. <laughs> pretty impressive stuff. Um, so now you're nine years or so into the business and the biggest probably one of the biggest stories in the media rights space has been the the renewal the next cycle of media rights deals in the u.s the numbers that are reported i'm not sure how accurate they are but they're around 110 billion dollars over 10 years through five different broadcasters um, cbs fox and nbc paying around two espn slash abc around 2.7 and then Obviously, the biggest excitement across our wider industry was Amazon coming on board and making that bigger commitment of uh, reported $1 billion a year. So that is locked in until 2030, gives the NFL an incredible uh, runway, I suppose, to navigate an incredibly fast, uh, changing uh, dynamic in how people are consuming uh, content, as well as the broadcasters and your major partners, I'm sure. Now I'm imagining the when you were negotiating those deals, um, there would be some pretty big changes to the fundamentals of what these agreements looked like the previous time you went through this this journey. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what that looks like now? What has changed? I'm guessing there's more flexibility in there. I remember hearing Jimmy Pataro from ESPN has talked about that recently about their demand of you know they're basically setting themselves up for the, for the big shift in in due course. What's changed when you're looking at the, these deals you've put in place um, with these major broadcasters? Nick, we're really excited about this landmark set of live game distribution partnerships. couple reasons. First, as you noted, we now have more than a decade of visibility into who our broadcast partners are going to be and how our fans are going to be able to watch games. And you talked about some of the flexibility that our partners now will have in these new deals. Um, one of the things that's so exciting to us is that every one of these partners not only has a traditional pay television distribution relationship, uh, and that ecosystem we, we think is going to continue to remain the primary reach vehicle and revenue driver for the NFL for years to come. It's been that way for decades. Um, we think that's still going to continue to be a really important way for our fans to watch games. But the digital distribution is an increasingly important part of that mix. And so each of our partners has their own digital streaming solution as well. And you'll see them 
over the next several years, increasingly put games on those platforms, whether that's CBS with Pluto, ESPN with the ESPN Plus, uh, as well as perhaps several other, uh, you know, endpoints within the Disney family in the future, NBC with Peacock, Fox with Tubi, and then, of course, Amazon, as you talked about, being a digital first company, um, will have games on Prime Video as well as on Twitch, uh, which we can talk more about. We've done some really exciting things with them over the last several years involving co-streamers and and how we make those games available. So I think when you look at that level of visibility, the the relative level of health that all of those companies currently enjoy, and the fact that this is for our fans, the best way we think uh, here in the United States to be able to make sure that the games can continue to be watched by as many fans as possible. um, That's always going to be core for us. The other thing I should point out for 80 years, for as long as the NFL has had games nationally televised uh, here in the U.S., those games have always been made available on free over-the-air TV. That's something that we are the only, we're really proud of the fact that we're the only major sports league that does that. We're going to continue to do that. At the same time, we recognize that the nature of how people access TV continues to evolve. So you'll see different forms of how those games are made available, how our fans can watch them. Um, and we think that's really exciting because it encourages our partners to innovate. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about some of the ways that they've been testing new forms of viewing and increasingly uh, personalized types of experiences, or at least different custom broadcasts. But ultimately, every one of these partners continues to really push boundaries on how they invest in the NFL and present the games in in ways that we think are, are most exciting for our fans. So you have these 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 partners with long-term deals. Most of them you've had a long-term relationship with as well. Um, were there anything specifically that was that has changed in those relationships, or is it just flexibility? Is there anything new that's come into the conversation that perhaps didn't exist in those those previous deals? And um, and I suppose uh, additionally to that, is there anything specifically you you believe will look differently in nine years time, you know, at the end of those deals in terms of how the broadcast is, is presented. Is anything sort of roadmapped? Um, obviously you said, talked about testing. There's been, we can talk a little bit about alternative broadcasts and so forth in a second, but is there anything specific or anything special that we should look out for that now that these, these broadcasters and the NFL has a runway on that you think will start to transform uh, other than the platforms that they're presented on being, whether it's on OTT or OTA. Uh, is there anything you can give us a, sh- a shed a little bit of light on there? Well, first of all, m- my boss, Brian Rolap, who's the chief media and business officer at the NFL, um, is fond of saying that anyone who can tell you what the future of media looks like five years from now, let alone 10, um, is lying to you because nobody knows. And, uh, you know, we certainly have our perspective on how things are evolving at the NFL. And, and as you noted, Nick, one of the things that was so important for us, but also for our partners heading into not only our live game distribution deals, but also in every negotiation uh, with partners is flexibility and planning for the future, because we can't necessarily predict everything. Um, what we can do is try to identify things right now that we, we think um, would enable our partners to make investments that will go where the fans want to be that will uh, push boundaries and innovate in things that we maybe haven't tried before, but think ultimately could uh, create better experiences. Those are the main areas of focus. I think as far as anything in particular that's changed, you'll see a lot. Look, I I talked about the 
nature of the distribution itself, the fact that these games will be made available so broadly in ways that ultimately are, as we think about it, any place where our fan is spending time, we want to be there. And we want to be there with not only the game itself, but also in ways that are going to be relevant for that fan on that device in that environment with the right type of content. So to me, you know, there will be many different ways that that will evolve. And there, you know, there's things that have been covered about even just some of the nature of flexible scheduling, some of the the differences even in uh, broadcasting. It was announced earlier this week about the ESPN relationship and and, uh, expanding with Wildcard. So there's a lot of things like that. But the simplest way I look at it is when we have partners that are uh, have the right aligned incentives to keep investing in not only producing the highest quality broadcast, but also testing new ways for fans to access that broadcast or what the future of that live game looks like. Um, that's something that we get really excited about. And, you know, I, I look at one other example, um, ESPN being a, a good one here. Um, a few weeks ago, some may have seen that there's a, through the partnership with ESPN, uh, still carrying Monday night football for the last decade plus. Um, and when you go back to ABC now, many decades, um, Earlier this season for the first time, Peyton and Eli Manning, uh, Hall of Fame, uh, Peyton's a Hall of Famer, Eli probably will be one day as well. Um, Brothers are uh, producing a simulcast on ESPN2 every week and in the future on ESPN Plus as well throughout the season. Uh, They're doing it 10 times a year. It's an experiment. It's bringing different voices in. What they're not trying to do is replicate play-by-play. Uh, or directly compete with the broadcast that you see that was on last night with Lewis Riddick, Brian Greasy, and Steve Levy. Levy. Instead, what they're doing is bringing their own perspective as two quarterbacks who've won four Super Bowls between them and multiple Super Bowl MVPs, um, telling stories, reacting to what they're seeing, um, and inviting people in uh, to, to sort of watch the game from the perspective that they have one of the most notable things that we've seen thus far this season was Eli Manning while watching a Cowboys game earlier this year, talking about Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott and his warm-up routine and impersonating what they call the Dak dance, which is this incredible uh, twisting of the hips to loosen up, to get ready for throwing a ball 50 times over the course of a game. Um, You know, these things go viral. They're shared throughout social media as well. There's great experiences like that, that, you know, small things that can make a big difference, but just the the feedback that we're seeing from fans around that kind of broadcast topping out at more than a million viewers, in addition to the 15, 16 million plus that are watching here in the U.S. for every every Monday night game, we think it's really promising as to different ways that we can bring different perspectives into the, the game itself. The amount of interest and excitement around that as a proposition was pretty incredible. And to be backed up week after week in those first three weeks, to see the numbers and ratings going up as they, as they have uh, has created all sorts of buzz and excitement about what that could mean for just the future of broadcasting generally, right, to, to get access. And you've seen some of this already being rolled out um, across Twitch as an example, where you're seeing the alternative streams, not just for the NFL, but other, other sports as well, where they're bringing co-streamers in and other Twitch streamers who are doing their alternative broadcasting, watching, watching sports. And it seems like people... I guess it's made more clear than ever that people really do connect with the voices and the personalities that they're they're listening to from a commentary perspective more than more than ever. So really exciting time and it's opened up you know concepts that I think people are already getting very excited with across 
all all sports, not just not just the NFL. Um, interestingly, with uh, and that's I mentioned Twitch. Let's talk a bit about the Amazon relationship because um, you mentioned about the OTA side of things. Um, Amazon's obviously a digital first uh, first platform. So, what's the expectation there in terms of of the broadcast coverage? Are you are they broadcasting anything through OTA or is it just the, the digital first uh, strategy there? And or is Twitch acting as the OTA platform for them? What's the what's the concept with that relationship? So here in the United States, uh, as has been a commitment that the NFL has made for eighty plus years, all games will continue to be available on free over the air television. So OTA um, in the U.S. Uh, in those local markets. So if you're a Chicago Bears fan and you're in the Chicago land area, the Bears game will still be available on free over the air television, regardless of the broadcaster through the duration of this relationship. In addition, I think you're right, Nick, that one of the things that's so interesting to us is this evolution of what distribution looks like in a digital environment. And so as you've seen for the last several years, the Amazon relationship is expansive beyond just Prime Video. We partnered with Amazon first in 2017 to carry what we call the Thursday Night Football TriCast, which is a game that's broadcast on today NFL Network, uh, now on Fox at the time with CBS and NBC, it alternated. Um, But now on Thursday nights, it's with Fox, with NFL Network, and on Prime Video simultaneously. And later that year, what we started to add, and it's it's real credit to, um, first, the vision of the colleagues I have at the NFL who've who've worked on this, and also the great partners that we have at Amazon uh, and at Twitch who are thinking about this, We expanded that live game into a co-stream on Twitch. And we've learned a ton over the last three plus years of streaming games on Twitch. One of the things that stood out is um, not only do we have, in the case of a Fox game, the Joe Buck and Troy Aikman call that fans can watch for free on Twitch, but also inviting some of the most influential Twitch streamers who bring their own audience and their own perspective Guys like Tim the Tatman and Gold Glove and Ninja. Ninja is one of the most influential streamers in the world. For those who are uh, gaming fans in particular, he, he's got such a, a remarkable personality and an incredible presence around how he thinks about uh, gaming and also just bringing uh, his community into his world. He's also a diehard Detroit Lions fan, and he talks about football all the time. And the intent here was not to bring in someone or anyone who's not interested in sports, but instead inviting real football fans. Tim the Tatman is, beyond being a a gamer and a streamer, a massive Dallas Cowboys fan. And will talk all the time. Anybody who watches his streams knows that he's often talking about Cowboys games. And so to be able to invite him in to, again, not try to pretend to be a broadcaster, but instead invite his community to watch a Thursday night football game from that perspective of, hey, let's talk about what we're seeing, um, while also using some of the native Twitch functionality, things like emotes and the comments, it's it's really been exciting. You look at the velocity of comments on any one of the Twitch Thursday night football streams, and it's uh, unlike anything that we had seen before because there was no two-way function like that with the live game. So that was the first step. You're going to see so much more of that over the next several years. Um, we really get excited about uh, the different ways that we can invite fans to participate in the conversation, to um, to react and also interact 
um, with the broadcasts that they're seeing. And that's something that we learned first from Twitch and that you'll see, I think, a lot more of with every broadcast partner in the future. Interesting. Yeah. And, and we keep seeing the moves that Amazon are making as well. And we were, I think everyone's excited to see how they add and integrate e-commerce opportunities as well from a monetization standpoint and how they integrate um, X-Ray further and further, which you guys have done some really cool stuff with them as well. So one definitely uh, to watch. Now let's, let's go a bit more wider um, and talk a bit more about the, the whole uh, media pie. Um, if we could start actually just digging into international a little bit, because the US deals get all the coverage because it's a really big number, so uh, or big numbers, so that gets everyone excited. How does the process of looking at, mar- I guess you take a pretty market by market approach, but what is the structure or strategy in how you go out about doing your media rights deals um, across more wider international markets? Is there a set strategy you go after? Yeah. So first of all, and I think you've had some of my colleagues on this podcast before talking about about this, um, the way that we're set up, we have an entire international team that's uh, thinking about this every day. So I'll speak to it in part. We work very closely with them. Chris Halpin, Damani Leach, um, uh, Brett Gospel and his team out in the UK now growing out the whole of Europe. Um, there's a there's a lot of collaboration there. Um, but what I would say from our team, from a seat that's kind of leading from a domestic business development standpoint, as well as when we talk about digital, the fact that things are so global, the way that we look at it is the uh, the NFL has identified a series of priority markets that, you know, as, as you note, we go market by market, recognizing that um, there are different characteristics of fandom. There are also different um, natural challenges, things like time zone that make the accessibility of games um, vary a bit country by country. The key markets over the last several years that the league has been most focused on uh, have included the whole of North America, so Canada and Mexico, over in the UK, where we're now going on 14 years of playing games um, with a break, unfortunately, in the um, 2020 season, but otherwise have continued to play games. And we just wrapped up um, two terrific uh, London games this this past weekend, um, both at, at Tottenham with 60,000 people uh, in the stands at Tottenham um, for that, that Jaguars win. So we're looking at uh, Canada, Mexico, the UK, Germany, and Brazil as the primary markets that um, it, my colleagues have focused their energy uh, in terms of thinking about both our live game distribution, uh, as well as different types of fan outreach to build out everything from grassroots knowledge of the game, fandom, as well as uh, it, making our content as widely available as possible in those markets. We certainly endeavor to be in every territory around the world. We, in fact, just launched an NFL Africa program that we're really excited about. There's a broad set of identified territories. China, as well, is something that we've been investing in for more than a decade. Um, we recognize that um, there's 180 million people who are NFL fans here in the United States we spend a lot of time thinking about how best to continue to engage them and, and maintain our position of leadership. And it's something we take seriously. At the same time, we are the rare sport that is called something completely different outside of our home country. And so uh, that's been in large part an effort in education, in continuing to invest, to demonstrate that we're committed to these markets and look no further than being in Europe for well over a decade and in the UK in particular, but now increasingly in Germany. And we're really excited about the different ways that as we continue to expose more of our fans or prospective fans to the sport of football, 
be it by playing, by watching the game at the highest level on television, or increasingly by being able to buy a ticket and come out and see how exciting it is in person. we're confident that that's going to continue to be the right strategy for us to reach people. And I, I should note one other thing, because I know we'll touch on it a little bit um, when we talk about social media. The biggest area I would say that my team has been um, focused on our international distribution over the last several years is with uh, relationships that are global on digital platforms. So the things that we do when we're creating partnerships with Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Snapchat, Giphy, TikTok, Reddit, All of these different environments enable us to program content that can be seen by a a wide-reaching audience um, and increasingly target that content with local language, with different forms of um, uh, optimized programming for what we know resonates with people in individual markets. Um, And you'll see us continue to do a lot more there. I I could probably ask this question. I'm not sure this is the right way to ask it, but from from a consumption perspective, um, we've talked about the U.S. deal and you've got most of all these major deals in place. If I'm a U.S. consumer and I'm a typical market international consumer, how what's the fundamental differences in what I get served and how I can access it? So, um, for example, you have obviously the Game Pass platform, which is available in lots of markets. Uh, with Red Zone, which we would love to hear a bit more about that as well. But what is the fundamental differences between someone who's a consumer in the US and someone who's a consumer in the majority of your your typical international markets? Because I'm imagining there's, there's there is some fundamental differences there. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on it. The um, the primary difference with watching live games is that depending on the market that you are in, um, if you're outside of the United States you're probably going to watch the games with some combination of the local market broadcast partner, be that, you know, Sky in the uh, UK uh, or, you know, ProSieben in Germany or any one of the other great international broadcast partners that we have, but also to augment that viewership uh, or perhaps get that viewership primarily with our Game Pass subscription product. Um, And Game Pass is a product outside of the U.S. that carries all of our live games for the, um, you know, for your U.S. listeners who may not be as familiar with the international version of Game Pass, think about it like Sunday Ticket plus all of the uh, broadcast primetime games all in one. So uh, that piece of it, that live game experience is, and to be clear, Game Pass is a fully built OTT product. Um, It's available on, you know, phone, tablet, Streaming, OT, uh, streaming on connected devices as well. Um, that's going to be the biggest difference. What I think is exciting and where things were a lot more differentiated years ago is that we also had very little local language content. We also had very little content that just due to the nature of the way the rights were cut um, may have been even accessible as VOD or things like in-progress highlights that just weren't available outside of the U.S., that's changed tremendously. Again, when I look at the breadth and depth with which we partner with social media platforms, um, whether you're a fan in Ireland, in Australia, or in Iowa, that content is available for you. And increasingly, we're inviting fans to participate in that conversation, whether it's live conversation on Twitter or creating their own TikTok, TikToks to follow a hashtag challenge and dance along with you know, their favorite player. All of those things that didn't exist years ago are, are now there as well. 
um, at the same time. We recognize that it might be the middle of the night where you're watching in certain parts. Uh, and so, you know, having different products that it enable a fan to do more than just watch on a, a live linear scheduled time, um, we think is helpful. Uh, but to me, that's the biggest difference right now. I have to tell you, the NFL Game Pass has been a lifesaver for me with my two young kids because they haven't been able to sleep very well over the first few years. And uh, I was able to watch a lot of NFL through the nights when I was up with them trying to get them to go back to sleep. So it's, it's been a genuine lifesaver for me. Uh, but in all, in all seriousness, so um, the NFL Game Pass is, has grown from strength to strength. You guys partner with, oh, what's the name? Um, well, Bruin is... Delta Trey. With Delta Trey and Bruin. With Delta Trey. Yeah, yeah. So they're sort of powering that part of the business. And I believe the marketing of that, if I'm correct, it goes through two circles. Is that right? Yeah, there's a host of partners, uh, you know, a lot of it coming at the league office as well. Um, my colleagues on the international side could probably speak to it in more depth. But, um, you know, the uh, the Delta Trade relationship is now, boy, I think five plus years. And, you know, as you noted, I think they've done a really great job building out that product. It's got um, both... The live games, I should note also, as if only to sound like a blatant commercial for it, but thank you, Nick, for the plug, um, a, a whole range of other content. There's there's an NFL Network feed in it for fans who are, are watching that, um, as well as a, a range of on-demand content, um, you know, and just as a sort of feature set, um, we're seeing fans uh, be able to... Um, you know, telestrate and, and, you know, cut up their favorite plays. But the other thing for the most avid fans, and it's something that, that often gets overlooked, but I think is, uh, you know, a really compelling part of it for the, for the most avid fans or for coaching purposes is that we have something called the all 22 cam, which is also known as coaches film. Um, and that's the 11 on 11, um, overhead shot. There's an HD camera inside of every one of the NFL stadiums that's capturing this. Um, and that's the footage that the players themselves are watching when they're sitting, um, in their team meeting rooms throughout the week to analyze game tape and, uh, you know, make adjustments and decisions and, and plan for their next week. Um, all of that content is made available for fans immediately after the game is over uh, inside of Game Pass. And we've seen some some fun anecdotal stories over the years about everything from high school coaches using that to teach their um, to teach their teams about, you know, what the proper positioning is and how to run a route um, to college coaches who've said that they're uh, they're watching this footage to gain inspiration for different types of play calls. So we've talked a little about the there's a T platform, the game pass side of things. We've talked about the big broadcast deals. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about completing the digital pie, so to speak, particularly from a business perspective. Where are the, the key revenue drivers coming from? I'm imagining the big broadcast deals, if they're not the majority of the revenue, I'd be I would love to hear where else is what else is taking up a big chunk of that pie. But uh, what what are some of the other key components of where you guys are able to to generate revenue from through that digital mix? How, how big a role, for example, is the OTT play, uh, or is really the majority just coming from those those major broadcast rights deals, and the other stuff is more complementary um, to to the wider mix. I think what's exciting, uh, though we don't get into or disclose the specifics of the numbers, we, we really have three large-scale businesses now. Um, one of them is our, our live games, which is the um, center of the bullseye, uh, the middle of the flywheel, if you will, for everything that we do. And um, the game, not just from a media business standpoint, but in terms of the long-term development of fans, there's nothing more impactful for us than someone playing the sport of football at any age in any organized way. And the second most impactful thing, and the two go hand in hand, 
is watching the sport of football um, and NFL football in particular. Um, the more we can get fans to watch our live games, uh, the, the better off we'll be. It's always going to be the, the, the heart of what we do, especially given that we only play once a week. The second is our media-owned and operated assets. We have um, a robust set of cable television networks um, operating here in the U.S. and, as we noted, now broadly available around the world in certain places as well. Um, NFL Network and NFL Red Zone, um, also known as the uh, you know the world's gift to football. Um, additionally, we have. A pretty robust digital business. My colleagues out in LA overseeing NFL.com, our subscription products, which include not only Game Pass, but also the Game Pass domestic version, which is a similar product, but has all of those games with every broadcast angle, every uh, component of VOD available right after games are over, as well as uh, live preseason games and live audio. Um, and our fantasy property, uh, which has several million people playing fantasy football um, in a season-long commissioner-style game um, throughout the course of the season. The totality of that business, the NFL.com, the NFL app, and its related products business is uh, combined the core of our O&O. And you may have seen recently, uh, we've engaged Goldman Sachs in a process where um, we're looking right now at different strategic partners uh, that will work with the NFL to continue to grow that business. We think it's a great opportunity to continue to expand the, the reach and the dynamism around that type of content. The third and final driver of revenue, and actually where I spend the bulk of my time these days, is our media partnerships. Um, and that includes everything we do 24-7. It's the likes of the NFL's commercial partnership with all of the social media platforms, um, which we can, I'm sure, get into in a moment. Um, it's also our video syndication business, which you can think of as anywhere that you can see a highlight on the internet. If it's not just coming directly from NFL.com, chances are it came from us with one of our partners like Yahoo, MSN, uh, Send to News, which is a great company that has uh, more than 200 plus local newspaper uh, relationships uh, and a host of other uh, digital first sports publishers that get our highlights out there so that our fans can see them, whether they're coming to the uh, largest and most widely distributed websites um, or, you know, really specific uh, niche content in their local market. Um, and the third and final component of that is all of the different ways that we partner um, around original production and original streaming content. Um, and you'll see us doing a lot more there. We, we have the uh, tremendous luxury of having NFL films uh, as well as the NFL Network, NFL.com and NFL social teams that all have really uh, robust production capabilities we're increasingly creating original content for each one of these platforms. So you touched upon your own your own media outlets and platforms. Um, and the thing we keep hearing across a lot of rights holders is how to extract value from going direct to consumer with your own platform. Um, we've seen lots of different moves where people are launching their own D2C offering uh, across the wider industry. We've also seen some, um, some sports roll back into major media broadcasters um, moving away from their own platforms and, and selling rights back to some of the major media platforms. Um, what Do you have a particular take, I suppose, on how the best way to, to, to generate uh, an optimal monetization of audiences on those platforms? Obviously, there's tr the traditional means of subscription. Um, we're hearing a lot about share of wallet these days and how you measure um, uh, you know, optimal revenue generation. 
is that how you look at it or are you looking at basically is it's just one piece of the big the, the complete picture for for a fan we've always been focused on three core metrics reach which is how broadly can we make our games available um and that NFL media strategy has not changed since 1939 when the NFL first broadcast a nationally televised game on NBC, which notably is still a partner. Uh, The approach has been go where the fans are, be on the most widely available, widely distributed platforms of the day. Historically, that was TV and radio. Those two continue, but also now a broad range of digital endpoints. Reach, revenue, strategic value. Those are the three core metrics for us that we look at in any partnership at any level to assess what the right business decision is. I I think we recognize that our our friends across the industry and other sports all have different businesses. They, They play a different number of times. They have different approaches in terms of how their rights are segmented. I can only speak to what we do with the NFL for us. You know, we've talked about the live games and that's really where everything starts and having that level of visibility coupled with a long-term labor agreement. We have uh, a collective bargaining agreement with our players that runs through the next decade. So having that visibility that ensures the health of our game, the competitive balance of our game, um, because we have a salary cap in place that that creates economic opportunity and growth for our players while also ensuring um, you know, that the teams are all playing at a, a competitively equal playing field. Um, is something that we we feel like is uh, a model that's worked really well for us over the years, and we still feel like has a lot of potential. Um, in terms of how we monetize individual audiences, you know, I think beyond our live games, one of the things that we're really excited about is how much we've been able to um, create some pretty compelling and sustainable partnerships in social media. You know, we've talked about having subscription products. We have a an O&O business as well that we're doing media sales. We have sponsorship opportunities where um, Rene Anderson and Tracy Rodberg and their team uh, overseeing what is the largest sports sponsorship business in the world is increasingly thinking about how we create new activation touch points for our fans. And social is increasingly a big part of that. And so there's two things that we're doing there that, um, you know, we think uh, have, um, have been really exciting both for our fans and for our partners. One is we continue to work with platforms to try to develop new and innovative models for them ultimately to make money. The the ways that they're doing that is mostly working with us to license content to make commitments around the type of programming that we're going to make. But the reason they're doing it is that ultimately what we're seeing now from tech companies is something that broadcasters have seen for decades, which is Working with the NFL enables them to deliver a large-scaled audience that comes to their platform that they're able to monetize more directly in broader ways and to use the NFL as a premium asset to drive different forms of monetization um, and new forms of innovative content and engagement. And so whether that's on Snapchat, on Facebook, on TikTok, on Twitter, we have partners that are creating their own packages of content largely because they recognize that for all the engagement that they have on their platforms, their advertisers in particular still want premium assets and they want visibility around the biggest and most iconic tent poles in the world of sports. And uh, we think there's nothing better to deliver that than NFL football. And so I'm conscious of where we're running sort of towards the end of time here. So I'm, I've got a quick 
one or two questions to, to finish off if, if possible. But um, let's jump into betting then, because I, I think that's the, that's the area that the whole U.S. sports industry is, is following closely. Um, data is at the heart of that. You guys have recently uh, done a, uh, your deal with Genius Sports, which have acquired um, you know, the official rights to your, your, your data. Um, I think also the NFL will get some sort of equity part of that as well, for, for, if reports are correct. Um, but talk us through, I mean, that all links with the, the reason they're doing that deal is, is largely around the betting space. There's alternative ways of making um, money, but the, the betting is the core there. Where, where are you, what are you guys doing in the, the betting space specifically? Or any examples you can share that are really moving the needle for you in terms of, again, uh, audience engagement, uh, rev- revenue, or, uh, or more strategic value, I guess, as well? Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. You know, what, what's exciting for us is that after um, so many years of, of waiting patiently to see how this market evolves, um, and there's still a long way to go, what we're so bullish about with respect to sports betting um, is the fact that this is going to create, we think, another fan engagement touch point that will take, um, that will give fans reason to tune in to buy a ticket, to watch and engage, and to talk about football. And so whether that's reason to stay tuned in in a fourth quarter blowout or just having something new to follow along and people uh, become fans of a new player or a team as a result of making a bet, um, we recognize that's something that our, you know, our friends over in the UK and other markets have seen for decades. Um, and in as long as it remains in a uh, you know, highly regulated and visible market that um, can ensure and protect the integrity of the game, which is always paramount for us, um, we think there's a lot of opportunity. So within that, as you noted, we're doing a lot of things. We have a data distribution partnership now with Genius and, and think they're going to be a, a terrific partner to uh, license and make available data in a range of different ways um, for uh, both media uh, partners, um, sports betting operators, and a host of others. I think um, additionally, we've got now going into, I think, about a half decade of partnership with DraftKings as um, a daily fantasy partner. For us, that was a sort of interim step. We had fantasy football that we've done for now more than 10 years. We've learned a lot about our, in, our sort of fan interest in fantasy um, and how that continues to drive fandom and drive interest in the sport. We learned that even more so in daily fantasy several years ago, and then as Legalized sports betting has increasingly come online here in the U.S., and we're still a long way to go toward being with more than half of, of the states uh, participating and having it available in a um, you know in, in forms that are easy and accessible for fans to participate in. Um, we're seeing sports betting now just continue to come online as a, a different opportunity for fans to engage with. Um, so on the sports betting card, you're in, you have an investment banker background. We talked about 2030 with these broadcast deals. You guys are now just looking at all those. All, you, you're able to focus on other areas. How big a piece of that pie is betting going to be by 2030? You know, we really don't know. I think when we look at where it's going to impact our game, the more interesting question for us is what are the different ways that fans will interact with football at that time? I think one of them is that there could be differentiated feeds of the live game specifically targeted at sports bettors. Right now, I can tell you that we do a lot of fan polling um, and, and surveying of our fans. We know that there's a large audience of fans that do not want to see that in the game. 
Now that will change over time, but that's just based on where it is currently. So what it isn't going to be right now is that the primary feed, if you're watching a Fox broadcast hearing Joe Buck and Troy Aikman call an NFL game, it's not going to be, at least today in 2021, a broadcast that's highly focused on every form of bet that a better can make. Could there be a separate feed, however, that's specifically focused on that? Sure. And increasingly, you're seeing both with original content that our partners are creating and increasingly with um, you know different types of simulcasts. We could see some of that. We could see that even more in the future where some of the sports betting operators may carry their own feeds. Um, I think similarly, um, you'll see other types of uh, personalized content catered toward that better. Um, those are the things where it could be going. I'll answer the question, Nick, slightly differently, which is what does the broadcast look like in 2030? What are we watching as fans, not just for sports betting, but but across the board? And what I think is so promising about that is when I look back at the last two years, especially at the start of the pandemic, one thing that people have asked us a lot is whether or not the pandemic uh, caused us to have to create things that we never thought of before. There's a bit of that, but I would also point out that so much of the innovation came from things that actually had been identified for years and were long planned, but that we just hadn't been able to get to yet or the technology wasn't ready yet. So what does that mean? A convergence of technologies like 5G here in the United States with just broadband connectivity increasingly better, augmented reality and virtual reality, creating immersive environments that will enable fans to actually interact with things in a very different way. We're doing some of that already, but it's uh, it's still early days and there's a lot more to come. Um, and social media, powering a form of connectivity and conversation that's two-way rather than just strictly lean back. All of those things will emerge and then there's a crossover into things like gaming, um, and even the potential of how people may bring NFTs into that environment one day, um, I think you're going to see a real evolution in what our live games look like. And again, that doesn't mean that the game that we've been watching for 80 plus years on television won't continue to be there and it won't be as familiar as ever for as long as people want to watch it that way. But what the technology now enables us to do is offer different and personalized versions of that game segmented toward different audiences that might want a different experience or a complementary one. And when you consider the fact that everything from hardware adoption to different types of technology supports layers of, of new ways for fans to express themselves, um, you know, and interact with that broadcast, that's where I get really excited about where, you know, where I think it's going to go in the next 10 years. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what happens next and what, what the NFL is able to create and develop over the next few years i think you guys are probably unsure what that looks like because it is such a fast moving world we live in today but blake i think that's all we've got time for today thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast and giving us a little insight into to your world and and what's happening at the nfl and we really look forward to seeing what's next thanks so much nick <laughs>